the Real Faith for Real Life podcast, and today we're going to continue our series through the book of Hebrews. Today, talking about another reason why it makes sense to choose Jesus over every other option. Plus, we'll check in with current events to see how real faith intersects with real life. All right, this is the Real Faith for Real Life podcast from Cascade Fellowship in Grand Rapids, Michigan. All right, Bill. First in the news, scientists have discovered you're only 43% human. Me specifically? Yeah. Well, right. <laughs> so just kidding. Here's, here's the news story I found this week. A stunning stat, only 43% of the cells in your body are human, or are you. The rest is composed of a staggeringly diverse community of bacteria and other organisms at work in your gut and other places. True. So... Scientists are now saying that understanding this other half of ourselves, this microbiome, is going to transform our understanding of disease from allergies to Parkinson's, um, autism, depression, some cancers, obesity even. So it's like, wow, something to think about. Yeah, a friend of ours, um, she is very involved in this and she has seen people's uh, lives transformed from being hmm. kind of like crippled by their health focusing on gut health and seeing them find uh, a, a great new lifestyle healthiness and and yeah like allergies being relieved as well too so hey i i believe it i believe that it's true and it, there's a lot to study there and learn yeah you know i was looking back on my own life and at one point i was eric sized i was <laughs> fit i was thin <laughs> i was in shape actually i was on the other side of in shape i was like 115 pounds for mm. most of my journey through high school. So you can imagine that went well mm. for me. Yeah. <laughs> Skinny little runt. And at some point I got uh, MRSA, which required some really intense antibiotics. Uh, vancomycin just cleared my entire microbiome out, I'm sure. Um, and after that point, it was like a before and after switch. And I started gaining weight and, you know, mm. just having all these different health things, more allergies. And so I think, I think, yeah. I might have cleared out the good bacteria and never got it back in balance. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm working on now. So really interesting story. And, you know, I, I resonate with it. It's, it's like, man, the way God has created all the living organisms on planet Earth to work together, mm -hmm. you know, we think we know a lot about science. We think we know a lot about health and medicine. And then something like this comes along and it's like, oh, wow, we... We have no clue. Like yeah. God's work is so much bigger and we'll always be discovering more and more and more and more, I guess. Yeah, I love that. And so it sounds like understanding our microbiome might help us live a little longer, but how would you like to, Bill, live mm. forever, right? If so, <laughs> there might be an option just for you. All right. That's our second story. A big caveat, though, it's not actually you living forever. It's a digital representation of you. This is in the news again. It's nothing new. It's actually been in the movies for a while. This idea, you know, as early as 1998, we saw people trying to upload themselves into cyberspace in the X-Files or more recently on the Netflix series Black Mirror in 2016, people were shown in this digital afterlife, even falling in love with one another. But the question is, is this possible in real life? And apparently it is. So there's this guy who's uh, the founder of the metaverse company Somnium Space, and he's created a feature in the metaverse called Live Forever Mode. 
And what he does is he collects data about you while you're in VR, how you move, how you walk, and how you speak, how you interact with people. And he builds an AI avatar of you that can interact with other people just like you did when you were alive. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> and really, the story is interesting. He said he was inspired by his ailing father and the realization that his children would never get to know their grandfather. And so he tried to create a version of their grandfather that they could get to know and interact with. So I don't know. It's kind of neat. And he's not the only one trying to work on this. There's another company called You Only Virtual, <laughs> Y-O-V. And their founder modeled a chatbot after his mother. He inputted 2.8 thousand pages of her text messages. And it just kind of created this persona around, oh, this is how his mother used to talk and be. And so it's available to anyone now, apparently. If you want to create your own chatbot based on somebody you love... It's a $500 fee up front and $40 a month to continue chatting with this person, mm. this digital representation of this person. So, I don't know. What do you make of all this, Eric? Digital afterlife. Yeah, this is a hard one for me to uh, figure out here. Uh, I don't know a ton about the metaverse and, mm. and kind of this digital world that's coming uh, like that. But I can see that there's, I think, good intentions behind it albeit a little weird. Mm. It's a little strange because it's never actually the person, clearly. Um, so I'm not quite sure how I feel about it yet. I'm still kind of processing that information. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, like you said, it seems like their motivations are good. But, uh, yeah, there's criticism, you know. It, does it interrupt the grieving process to not let go of a person? Like you're engaging with their chat bot for months and years later. and um, Of course, the real thing is it's not really them. Right. You know, some of these lines get blurred in sci-fi movies, like your consciousness has been uploaded and you continue to exist digitally. And I, I don't buy that for a second. Right. So. Right. Well, you really couldn't ask for a better segue into our uh, Bible study for this week. We're continuing a journey through the book of Hebrews uh, in the Bible. Today, we're asking the question, who can really provide us with the rest that we're all really looking for? So let's dive in. Well, Pastor Eric, for today's study, I want to do something I almost never do, and that is start at the end. Okay. So the last two verses in our passage for this week are so cool that I want to frame our entire conversation around them. All right. So those verses are Hebrews 4, uh, verses 12 and 13. So I would love to read those right now to give us a starting point or an ending <laughs> point, how you look at it, right? For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, so Bill, why are we starting here? I thought... You know, we were going to talk about living forever today, and you mentioned rest. There's a lot on the table here. Right. So that's the biggest question anybody could ever ask, right? Is it possible to live forever? Is it possible to find rest, eternal rest even? Um, you know, you hear people talk about uh, rest in peace, mm. right, at a funeral. And 
there's this understanding that the world's hard. It's full of struggle and strife and turmoil and tension, disease, and of course, death. And all of us kind of have this hope that after we die, you know, that's going to be scary no matter what. But universally, on the other side of death, there's this kind of human hope that we go somewhere else and that it's a good place, that it's a place of rest, that we finally get to rest in peace. So how do you know that there is an afterlife, you know? And if there is, how do you know how to get there? Well, it all comes down down to who you trust, right? So a lot of people say a lot of different things about this question. A lot of religions offer a lot of different ways and paths. So which one is right? It's an important question. Um, As a Christian pastor, of course, I want to make the case that the Bible is a trustworthy source on this question and every question. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why this passage is so cool, what we just read, and the larger passage we're going to look at today, basically Hebrews 3 and 4. Um, This passage is great because it tells us the Bible is not like any other ordinary book. Sure, it does use words, you know, nouns and verbs. It does have sentences and verb tenses, characters and plot lines, but there's something different about this book. There's something special. It's active. That's what the verse said, right? It's active and it's alive. Yeah, so let's pause and think about those two words specifically. First, what does it mean to call the Word of God alive and active? Well, consider how it's different than a history book, um, like something you might read in college. You know, if you read a book about Abraham Lincoln, it'll help you learn about Lincoln. You'll learn about his upbringing, his political career, his role in the Civil War, but you're not going to meet Lincoln himself. Um, The Bible, I believe, is different because you actually will meet God himself. So let's take a tour through just a few other passages that help us unpack how the Bible is completely unique and explain what it means when we say the the Bible is active and it's alive. Um, So the first verse we'll kind of take a detour through is 2 Timothy 3, 15 um, through 16, 17 and on. So Paul is writing his protege, Timothy, and he says, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. And then he describes what those scriptures are. He says, they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the key word here is scripture is God-breathed. It basically is telling us scripture isn't you know, the words of some inspired people, like some really smart people who had some kind of experience. Um, they're not inspired as much as they're expired. The words of Scripture are breathed out by God himself. Mm-hmm. And therefore, of course, profitable to us. It rebukes, it corrects, it trains in righteousness, it equips us for good works. And when you read it, you see it. It comes alive in you to do all these things. And a very similar verse, Second Peter 1.20. We'll take another detour through this verse super briefly. Uh, Peter writes, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, it's really interesting. Peter is saying, listen, I'm not I'm not saying the Bible wasn't written by humans. The Bible was written by humans, about 40 different human authors. 
But God is the ultimate author. So these human authors, yeah, they had their experiences, their personalities. They were writing about what they had experienced. But God was working simultaneously through all of it, through the whole process, so that what they ended up writing down was exactly what he wanted written down and exactly what he intended us to receive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's alive and it's active. Now, if we go back to Hebrews chapter 4, it's also sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even uh, to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Uh, What does it mean to compare the Bible to a sword? Yeah, so it's the picture here probably of a Roman sword called a gladius, short but sharp. It could really penetrate even through an enemy's armor, some types of armor. And I think that's what God's word does, right? It penetrates through our defenses, our armor, so to speak, our sinfulness even. And it's interesting that throughout the Bible, the word of God is compared to a sword. This is not just a one-off. It's throughout the whole Bible. So in Ephesians 6, uh, when Paul encouraged us to put on the full armor of God, he spoke about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in the book of Revelation, we get this picture of Jesus at the end of the age, uh, Revelation 1.16. In his hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword, mm-hmm. the word of God, again, a sword. So that's his weapon, is his, war, is his word. And as you go through the book of Revelation, you see this sword can save, and this sword also can bring judgment. So it's, it's powerful. The words coming out of Jesus' mouth, the words of God are powerful. So, okay, back to Hebrews. In Hebrews, uh, we're talking about this sword penetrating us, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And a lot of people get tripped up over this phrase. It's not giving us an anatomy lesson, like here's what a human is composed of, soul and spirit, like the soul is totally different than the spirit, or not at all what we're trying to teach here. So uh, it's just a way of graphically saying God's word can penetrate into the most inner parts, the innermost parts of a human being. It cuts to the core, in other words. It's like a scalpel that God uses for spiritual surgery. He cuts through sin and darkness and right into the human heart. And once it's there, it it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So it's like James says, we're looking in a mirror, compares looking in the word of God to looking in a mirror, shows us who we are. Um, So I think that's what we're learning here from Hebrews. To sum it all up, here's a great quote for you before we move on to something else. This kind of sums up this whole section here. Michael J. Kruger uh, wrote these words in a commentary on Hebrews. The word of God is energetic, powerful, and mighty. It doesn't just say things, it does things. It's busy working, changing, building, convicting, encouraging, exposing, rebuking, giving light and wisdom carving out a path of our lives and showing us the truth of God. At the very beginning, God spoke the world into existence. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he used the power and energy of God's word to rebuke and push back the lines of the devil. And there are Jesus' miracles performed by speaking with a divine decree. Jesus calmed the sea by saying to the waves, be still. This is the kind of thing that the word still does. So, the Word of God, alive and active and powerful and penetrating into the deepest parts of our lives. So, Eric, how does all this resonate with you? Do you have 
I mean, I hope we all as Christians have experiences of this. How have you seen that in your life? Yeah, I would say uh, probably most recently the um, the chapter uh, 15 in the book of John, where Jesus is talking about abiding in him. If you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. Mm. And what does it look like to abide on the vine of Jesus Christ? Something about that when I was reading it, it really was like a sword that kind of like pierced through this hard outer shell that I constantly you know, because I'm sinful, try to put on, like I try mm. to cover myself up, but, but the work of the spirit and in, in Jesus's words there, it takes that off and it, and it, and it shows me something about my life and, and how I should be living. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's not uncommon for it to be a different passage. You know, people say they have life verses mm-hmm. and it's their whole life verse. I agree with that. But what if you had life verses on verses on verses, <laughs> because I believe that the spirit is active in this too. And the, the Word of God is alive and active, so different parts of our lives present different things. Um, you know, so for me, that's that's been an important verse, and I have definitely loved and appreciated um, that that part of Jesus's ministry here on earth. Yeah, you speak of life verse. I keep this in front of me in my Apple Notes app all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Galatians five six. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Mm. So that helps center me when I, you know, am tempted to get off track. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So that's kind of how God's word penetrates into my heart and gives me little correctives at time and keeps me on track, encourages me, gives me courage, literally. So anyway, I guess it's time to zoom back out. So um, just to orient us, so far we've been talking about just those two verses. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, and what they say about the Word of God. <clears throat> and um, those words are the capstone of a much larger passage here in the Bible, the segment we talked about on Sunday, by the way, at her worship gathering. So if you want to look that sermon up, it's out there on cascadefellowship.org. We unpack it all. Um, but it basically, just to review, it's a, a segment of Scripture about Moses and Joshua, and a segment about rest, like we've been talking about. A segment about eternal life, life beyond death. And you know, now that we've unpacked Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, I think it would be interesting to go back and look at the rest of that section so we can apply what we've learned and learn about rest as we do so. So a um, bit of context, just to review. In this series, we've been saying Hebrews is all about one big idea, that Hebrews is or excuse me, Jesus is greater than everything. In part one, we saw he's greater than the angels. In part two, we saw he's, or excuse me, in part one, greater than the prophets. Part two, greater than the angels. Now this week, this entire section, Hebrews three and four, is about one big idea. And that big idea is Jesus is greater than Moses and greater than Joshua. Uh, Two key figures in the Old Testament whose role was to lead the people uh, out of slavery and into rest. And the comparison is Jesus is even greater than them, and he's the one that can really lead us to rest. So Jesus is greater than Moses, and if Jesus is greater than Moses, then he deserves a greater response than Moses. So what kind of response does he deserve? That's where this passage begins. And to answer that question, the the author of Hebrews, he does something really, really interesting. He turns to scripture for the answer. Uh, He knows Scripture is alive. He knows Scripture is active and sharp. He knows Scripture can perform spiritual heart surgery on the people who he's writing to. And so, 
he quotes scripture to answer that question. He quotes Psalm 95. Yeah, so I would love to read that quote. It's beginning in Hebrews 3, verse 7. And it says this, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for forty years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath, or I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Now, the first thing that I kind of see here when I read this that I find interesting is that he prefaces this entire quote with the words, so as the Holy Spirit says. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, obviously he knows Psalm 95 was written by David, right? Um, but it was more than that. He knows that it was also written ultimately by God. God spoke it, and that's why he prefaced it by saying, S, the Holy Spirit says. And notice the tense there. It's, uh, it's not that God said it in the past even, but that God is continuing to say it. God is continuing to speak. So it's not just that David once wrote these words a long time ago, but God spoke them, and God is continuing to speak them. The Holy Spirit is speaking them to his readers then, and the Holy Spirit is speaking them to us today, too. Yeah, and I find it really interesting that the author of Hebrews keeps unpacking Psalm 95 for the rest of our passage this week. Uh, He comes back to the text of Psalm 95 over and over and over again. Sometimes he pulls out just one word at a time, and he shows how it's full of meaning. Yeah, and we'll we'll look at a couple instances of that now. And I hope that approach feels familiar because that's also kind of how I preach. If you have been around my preaching for a while, uh, I preach as if there is a purpose behind every word, mm-hmm. and every word is put there on purpose. There is meaning behind everything if we just look for it. And so, I think the author of Hebrews has the same approach. Yeah. So let's look at an example of this. Uh, I'll read the last part of this week's passage, and you interrupt me as I go uh, to kind of explain his approach to interpreting Scripture this way. Sounds good. So Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Okay, we'll pause there for a second after these first two verses of chapter 4. And he's basically recapping and giving us some context to understand Psalm 95, which he just quoted. And as he gives us the context, here's the context. The folks in the days of the Exodus, they received good news. They received the good news that God was leading them out of slavery and into a good land, into a land of milk and honey, peace and security and safety, rest, to use a biblical word. Um, But he says they did not receive the good news with faith. They didn't trust God, and so they didn't get to enter that rest. And further, we have that same warning today. We have Mm -hmm. to see what they didn't see, right? We have to not let that happen to us today. Yeah. Now we, uh, if we keep reading, uh, now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has says. So I declare, uh, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere, 
He has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Isn't this fascinating? It really is like a sermon. So he's laid out this text, Psalm 95. He's read a big chunk of it. And then he starts to dive in to individual little words, right? So now the author is focusing on the word rest. And it appears in Psalm 95, 11, which he's quoted twice now. And he notes one thing specifically about Psalm 95 you might have missed if you just read quickly. Psalm 95 says they get to enter his, like God speaking here, enter my rest. God calls rest my rest. And for the author of Hebrews, again, that word is not accidental, but it's full of meaning. Uh, it's saying that the rest we enter is not just any generic rest, but it's the rest of God himself. Now, what does that mean? This gets so deep, right? <laughs> but for that, to understand even more, the author of Hebrews quotes another passage of Scripture, Genesis 2.2. And in Genesis 2.2, it talks about God resting after he's finished creating everything. So the word rest appears in uh, Psalm 95.11, the word rest appears in Genesis 2.2. And so the author of Hebrews believes that every word in Scripture is inspired by God, breathed out by God, alive and active, sharp and penetrating. And so he says, listen, the word rest is not in Genesis by accident. It's not in 95, Psalm 95 by accident. Uh, we can learn something about rest by comparing these two passages and holding them side by side. God wrote both of them. And so he says what we learn is that God has been resting since creation. What does that mean? Well, obviously not that God is on vacation or taking a nap. That's not what rest is. God's working today. The Bible's clear on that. So what is rest? Um, the picture is that God has made and ordered and subdued creation according to his perfect, perfect plan. Everything's perfect. And creation, you know, after he finished creating everything, he's on the throne. He's ruling over it. He's reigning. Everything is perfect. Even humans at this point in the story in Genesis 2, humans were ruling in his place on earth, representing him as his image bearers. No sins separating them, no needs, no tears, a beautiful, satisfying, complete life with everything they need, including complete access to God. Perfection. No anxiety, no worry, no pain, no heartache, no frustration, just rest the mm -hmm. way God intended it to be. Mm -hmm. So that's the picture of what God created us for. That's the picture of what our rebellion against God ruined, our sin ruined. And it's also the picture of what God wants to give us back when he saves us, rest. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, Eric, isn't it interesting how the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 and uses Genesis 2 to help us understand this and really deeply understand what rest is. Yeah, right. And the writer is not done yet either. So uh, we're going to keep reading in Hebrews 4. It says, Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Okay, so now the author of Hebrews is keying in on another word. He quotes Psalm 95, 7 for the third time, by the way. And so he's wanting us to focus on this word, today. 
This word is also not there by accident. So listen, Moses and Joshua, we're talking about them, this, this experience of the Exodus, leaving Egypt, heading toward the promised land. He's saying Moses and Joshua didn't get the job done. They didn't ultimately lead the people to rest. The people's sinfulness prevented it. Um, so David wrote Psalm 95 to warn his generation not to make the same mistake. And he used the word today in that psalm, as if to say the offer still stands. And the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 to make that same point. The offer still stands to you. And even today on this podcast, as we read these words, the point is the same. The offer still stands. It's still today. So the only thing you need, the Bible says, is faith. That's the gospel. Just trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation. And then you can enter God's rest. That's the offer today mm-hmm. to everyone listening. And uh, we know this for certain to bring this full circle because of the marvelous resource we have in the scriptures. Right. This is God's word. And so we're going to end where we began. A lot of people say a lot of things about eternal life. Every religion offers some path to salvation, and every religion has a different picture of what salvation is. How do you know what's right? Well, obviously, I trust the Bible, the Word of God. I experience it as alive and active. I've been through the heart surgery that it provides. And like the author of Hebrews, I take it and I pull it apart one word at a time, And I expect there is meaning under every single word. So uh, we're doing a series later, a whole sermon series called, Now That's a Good Question. And we're going to tackle a really big question in that series. How do you know that the Bible is true? But for now, I would just encourage everybody listening to simply read it. Give it a chance. Give it a shot. And you'll be amazed at how it reads you and how you don't just read about God there, but you meet God there. Give it a try. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of uh, the podcast today. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We're going to continue the discussion next week. Make sure that you are watching online on YouTube uh, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Click subscribe so you won't miss any of the episodes. All right. See you soon. 